The scripture this afternoon is Psalm 125. It's printed on page 10 of the bulletin. It'll also be projected above. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to the crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with, evil, with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. The word of the Lord. One of the great movie endings of all time comes from 1969's Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Many of you already know what I'm talking about. This ending is a famous freeze frame, and it's really kind of the epitome of the, of the phrase, going out guns blazing, right? So Butch and Sundance, as played in the movie by Paul Newman and Robert Redford, are very endearing bank robbers. They're also very handsome bank robbers, probably more handsome than your average uh, criminal back then, and they are being chased by these Pinkerton detectives, and, and one in particular by the name of Joe LaFours, all the way to Bolivia in South America. And incidentally, historically, Butch and Sundance actually had to flee the country and sort of got in that predicament because they had their pictures taken with their gang, uh, the Wild Bunch or the Hole in the Wall gang, here in Fort Worth, actually, uh, downtown in a picture studio uh, close to what is now Del Frisco's. And if you take me to Del Frisco's, I'll actually show you exactly where the pictures were taken. So uh, Butch and Sundance find themselves holed up. They're being shot at, but they don't really know who is shooting at them. And so unbeknownst to them, as they sit and plan their escape, first to the horses, right, and, and then out of town, and then eventually to Australia, as they talk, they are being completely surrounded, not just by the town's police, but by the Bolivian military, just, just multitudes of soldiers. And so it's a, a poignant moment. Butch turns to Sundance, and for the first time, he seems kind of worried. And he says, did you see LaFours out there? The lawman's been tracking them. And Sundance says, no. And Butch says, good. For a minute there, I thought we might be in trouble. What does that have to do with our psalm? It's the most vivid illustration I can think of of what it is like to be surrounded. When Butch and Sundance come out shooting as the frame freezes on them, seemingly kind of right when they might have been registering how much trouble they were really in, we know that they are doomed. We know that there is no way out for them, that their deaths are inescapable. But Psalm 125 takes that same inescapability, that same inevitability, this idea of being surrounded on all sides, of being hemmed in in every way, and it turns that inside out and asks us to consider what would it be like to be surrounded by God? What would it be like to be hemmed in, unable to escape, pressed round on all sides by his love and his mercy and his grace? It turns out that we are. 
It turns out that the Lord surrounds his people, this psalm tells us, from this time forth to forevermore. It turns out that we cannot, in fact, escape the goodness and the kindness of God. So that in Christ, we are as doomed to eternal life and joy and peace as Butch and Sundance were to Bolivian bullets. And thank goodness we are, right? Because for a minute there, I thought we might be in trouble. So... Today, as we unfold Psalm 125, we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, God's surrounding love is not the only metaphor in the psalm, although I think it's probably the most powerful, and we'll return to it. But there are at least five other images in the psalm that I want to explore. So uh, let me list out the five that we'll go through. The first is Mount Zion. The second is Jerusalem. The third is scepter. The fourth is crookedness. And the fifth is peace. So Mount Zion, Jerusalem, scepter, crookedness, and peace. So let's look at the first of these. So quick reminder, if you haven't been around this summer, uh, we are in the Psalms of Ascent. In other words, the Psalms uh, that would have been sung as pilgrim Israelites made their way up uh, to Jerusalem. So uh, we begin, verse 1, a song of ascents. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. The psalmist then speaks first to the faithful, and he says they are like Mount Zion. Okay, so uh, my, my pastor friends and I, not Andy and Brian, we'll keep them out of this, but some of my uh, RUF pastor friends and I like to joke that we wish that there was a, uh, like a pastor hotline that we could call that was just totally anonymous and ask all of the embarrassing questions that we should know because we're pastors. You know, like dial in and be like, was Mark a disciple? I don't, I'm forgetting right now. Um, So I actually had a a pastor hotline moment as I was reading this where I thought, wait a second, what what is Mount Zion exactly, right? And so... uh, uh, I, I thought, you know, I, I know that we're marching there. I remember uh, the, the old Isaac Watts hymn I was singing at North Boulevard Church of Christ uh, throughout the 90s. Beautiful, beautiful Zion. But what is that exactly? So according to a, a good Bible dictionary that I have in my office, which is kind of like a pastor hotline, uh, part of the difficulty here is that Scripture talks about Mount Zion in a bunch of different ways. It says, if I understood everything I read correctly, it does in fact refer to a literal mountain, Mount Moriah, where the temple was built, also where Abraham prepared to sacrifice Isaac. But scripture also refers to Mount Zion as the city of David, right? Uh, Meaning Jerusalem more broadly. It refers to the whole nation of Israel as Zion and also even the heavenly city, the eternal Jerusalem as well. And so there's a, a broad range of meaning here. But what is clear is that mountains are very important in the Bible, and, and none of them is more important than Zion. And so uh, geography is destiny, it's been said before, and that is true in some sense with the people of God in the Old Testament. They are formed and they are shaped by where they live. And so God presented Israel with the law, 
at Mount Sinai, and then he presented Israel with a, a liturgy, Mount Zion, in the temple. And so Zion is, is often used in the Bible to reflect the strength and the beauty and the imposing nature and the, the protection of the God of Israel. And so mountains were, of course, in, in the milieu of this psalm, they were symbols of security. Now, uh, because we become what we worship, Scripture makes clear, and our God is like a mountain, we should probably not be surprised that uh, as we know the Lord more, that we become, the Scripture says, uh, Psalm 125 says, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. In other words, the, the people who trust God begin to reflect his strength, his beauty, some of his uh, solidity, and all of those other qualities that are also reflected in Jesus, who was tempted by Satan at a high mountain, who preached a sermon on the mount, and who was transfigured and, and revealed in his true glory on a mountain as well. There's even more here because in verse 2, the metaphor shifts a little bit. And this is our second image, Jerusalem. So these things are related, right? Uh, Mount Zion calls to mind more so God's stability, this sort of uh, solid rock foundation that he puts us on and, and upholds us. But the mountains around Jerusalem in verse 2 call to mind what, what we've sort of discussed a little bit already, this enveloping love and protection of the Almighty, and I really don't think that we can overstate how powerful this metaphor uh, would have been to the Israelites, who were a people who had been without a land, right? Who um, uh, had been an enslaved people without any protection whatsoever. And the Lord had brought them out of Egypt and into the promised land and into the security of this city where they were safe. And so Jerusalem is a stronghold, after all, it's situated amongst uh, uh, mountains, as it says, and valleys, and it's, it's naturally fortified, which Butch and Sundance, by the way, understood in this concept. In their heyday, they operated out of a, a remote uh, mountain pass called Hole in the Wall, that's the name of their gang, uh, in the Bighorn Mountains, a, a sort of naturally fortified area. And so what is around you can mean the difference between uh, protection and destruction, right? So thus, verse 2, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. So what's happening here is a, a sort of double analogy. Derek Kidner puts, <clears throat> puts it this way. He says, as Zion prompted thoughts of its living counterpart, the church, so the encircling hills drew the minds beyond themselves to God. That's where the psalm is drawing us. In other words, the, the church, the people of God are, are stable. We are, we are safe. We are secure as Mount Zion because the Lord surrounds us. God's people are naturally fortified in him. And so again, I think this concept of being surrounded is so powerful. And I think about my kids. Um, I think that, that they are the happiest when they're being held very tight. Right? 
Uh, or when my, my wife and I are making a kid's sandwich, so you, it's a hug from each side. you got the kid in the middle. They love that. And then, um, particularly, I was thinking about, you know, when they, when they crawl in bed, which is always way too early, uh, where do you think they go? Do they kind of perch on the side of the bed and, and talk to you? No. Parents, no, they don't do that. They wiggle right into the middle. They get like as cozy as they can possibly get. Kids want to be surrounded. They want to be surrounded by love and security. And we don't ever really grow out of that, I don't think. Adults are the same way. But the problem is that the reverse of this is also true, that, that if, if being surrounded by love is the best feeling, then being surrounded by trouble is the worst. Uh, it's, it's that claustrophobic sort of feeling, something closing in, right? That sort of anxiety. And you may feel that way right now. You may feel that way uh, in uh, fear or in uh, worry, anxiety about one thing or maybe about a thousand things. And I think I can say without being dismissive of that, that you are not alone. That you may be sort of unhappy in your own way, Tolstoy said, but, but uh, this feeling is a major theme of the Psalms because it is a major theme of life. That in this world we are, in many ways, surrounded by uncertainty. And it feels like that often. It feels like our control, our control over our health, our finances, our relationships is, is mostly an illusion, right? That uh, the world, the flesh, the devil, sometimes just the circumstances of living in a broken world press in on us. And of course, we know that that is not the end of the story. Psalm 125 tells us it's not the end of the story. But we might do well to camp here for, for a couple minutes just because it's, it's, it's no good to talk about the protection of the Lord if we don't know what we're being protected from. And so these next two metaphors are uh, negative metaphors, and then we'll circle back. The, f- the first is, uh, so this is number three in our list of five, the scepter. The message of this psalm and, and of verse three is ultimately one of, of hope. It's uh, that the scepter of wickedness will not rest on the righteous, that they cannot ultimately be conquered by evil. But I think that also implies at least a couple other things. It, first, that there is a scepter of evil. That's, uh, in, you know, a scepter is a ruler's rod. It's a symbol of authority. And this verse acknowledges what scripture elsewhere tells us, that evil is real. It's real. We think about Paul in uh, Ephesians 6. He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In other words, we we wrestle with the scepter of wickedness. Then second, this verse implies that uh, for a time, it might seem like evil has the throne. And so we read about this elsewhere, a number of places in the Psalms, of course, but um, particularly in Psalm 73, where Asaph says, I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, he says, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no pangs until death. They are not in trouble. Pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. What is he saying? He's saying, God, it looks like the bad guys are winning. It looks like they're winning. 
Like crookedness is winning. And that's our, our fourth idea here. So skipping down to verse 5, which, which speaks of crooked ways and evildoers. It says they are out there. I like how uh, Alec Motyer translates this. He says, uh, those who move off to their crookednesses. Uh, that's a, a very literal uh, and long-winded translation of bad guys, right? Um, and so to sum this up, this, this psalm, as short as it is, actually gives us a whole worldview, only in these five verses. It's that God is real, that he protects and secures his people, but also that evil exists. And we should not be surprised by that. But I think what is counterintuitive is this. Now, I think that uh, Christianity... Far from being weakened by this this problem of evil, is actually strengthened by it. You may not have known we were gonna we we're gonna get at the problem of evil, like the thorniest philosophical, theological, ethical problem in all of history, in like a five verse psalm today. But when you're the backup quarterback, you gotta you gotta throw downfield, you know. So here we are. Um, Okay, why would the problem of evil strengthen Christianity? Um, I, now, I, I think because Christianity actually does not have to solve all of the questions. It does not have to solve all of our questions about why uh, bad things, bad people exist. It just has to give us, I think, the best explanation of them. So it's a little bit like uh, what they say about outrunning a bear, right? That you don't have to outrun the bear, you just have to outrun the slowest person. Um, Does evil exist? Yes, but Christianity only has to outrun the other worldviews and the way that they approach this question. And I think it does. Christianity has a story. It has an, an explanation about how evil entered the world, its origins, and exactly what it is. The Christian definition is that evil, in other words, sin is lawlessness. It's uh, A, not doing God's law, and B, actively breaking that law. So you can think of if, if someone is, is laying uh, on the street dying and, and uh, I walk past them, I'm not doing God's law. If I kick them and then keep walking, then I'm actively breaking God's law, right? And either way, it is lawlessness. It's sin. It's wickedness. And so Christianity, far from, from turning away from that or just kind of explaining it away, says, yes, it's true. Lawlessness, evil, sin, all of it exists. There is no more clear-eyed explanation of, of human wickedness and, and frailty and just the, the ragged edge of this world than in Christianity and in the Bible. The Bible shows us natural disasters. It shows us poverty and, and sexual assault and murder. It tells us that evil exists out there in unspeakable crimes and in wicked ways in this world. And then the news gets even worse in the Bible because it tells us that evil also exists in, in your home and in your heart. Solzhenitsyn said, the line separating good and evil passes right through every human heart. And if you need proof of that, it's in verse 3 
right? This is, verse 3 kind of sticks out as a strange, we don't uh, always read things quite like this in the Psalms. It says um, that when the scepter of the wicked, their power and influence and authority, uh, that it causes even the righteous to stretch out their hands to do wrong. It's, it's, it's like sin is saying, come out, right? We've, we've got you surrounded. Come out. Surrounded by death and war and pestilence. Surrounded even in your own heart by your own sin. And in some sense, that is very true. That's why we sing and, and sang earlier uh, about being weak and wounded, sick and sore. Because we know that. And the psalmist knows, and he cries out, verse 4, he cries out, Do good, O Lord, do good. What a, that, what a powerful, in, in just a few words, prayer. Do good, O Lord, do good. How many times have we thought that and wanted that in our lives? Every time I turn the news on, that's what I want. And the truth is that there, there is actually no other option, right? Uh, he will either do us good, he will either redeem us from sin and renew this world and ultimately make all the sad things come untrue, or we are lost and untethered and, and dead already. We're already gone. The Israelites knew this intimately. They knew what it was like to not be secure, to be surrounded actually by enemies. Culturally, as, as, a, as a nation, they knew this from being in Israel. And so uh, their world uh, on a day-to-day -day basis is far more dangerous than ours. And so they, they really lived on that, that ragged edge where they needed, they needed God to fight for them. And so they pined for, this is our last concept here, for peace. And military peace is certainly implied here. If, if Zion wasn't there, right, or if the mountains surrounding Jerusalem were not there, then Israel would be, would be conquered. It would be pillaged. But uh, many of you know that the, the biblical word for peace, shalom, is, is an all-encompassing type of peace. It's a, an all-encompassing, a comprehensive wholeness and security. And so it's as much peace as it, it, it's as much being surrounded by peace as it is peace. And that is what God offers us. Not just a, a military or physical peace, although millions of people right now today would give anything for that and more than that he offers us peace with himself he offers us through that through peace with him he offers us peace in our own hearts in uh, in the sin and dwelling um, and and how does he do it like how can verse 5 peace be upon Israel and and in that way how can peace be on the church how can peace be on your life well, uh, in the end, this psalm is about Jerusalem. And the Salem at the end of Jerusalem is connected to this shalom. It's, it's basically the same word. And going way back, we first hear of the city in Genesis 14 when we meet 
Melchizedek, and we don't have time to unpack too much of this, but uh, Melchizedek is a sort of proto-Messianic priest-king, and he's the king of Salem, so he's the king of Jerusalem at this point, before it was Jerusalem, and the, the king of peace, but he is only a shadow of the one to come. He's only a shadow of the true and greater priest-king, right, and prophet as well, the prince of peace, and so it's in Hebrews also where we get that Melchizedek-Jesus connection that we read this. Of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So this throne, this righteous kingdom, the scepter is no longer a place. God's people don't need mountains to protect them anymore. We don't need a certain city to worship in. We don't need a temple to worship in. Uh, We simply need Jesus. We need Jesus. The conquering, the reigning, the immovable, the surrounding, the abiding, forever king. Will God do us good? Will you do good, God? The answer is yes. It's, he already has. Jesus is that good. Right before Butch and Sundance go down in their blaze of glory, um, they're talking about what it will be like when they make it to Australia. Thousands of miles we could hide out in, Butch says. Good climate, nice beaches, you could learn to swim. And the banks, meaning the, the banks to rob, easy, ripe, luscious. That's promised land language, right? It's this, this Jerusalem language. It's, it's, it's their version of peace. And they never made it because of who surrounded them. But this psalm says that, that whatever your situation right now, whatever troubles encompass you, that if you are in Christ, that that's not the end. That evil cannot have you. That that scepter has been broken. And so you may be hard-pressed for a time. But we know that you will abide forever with Jesus. And if you're not in Christ and you're here today, then uh, it's like he is saying to you, come out. Jesus is saying, come out. I've got you surrounded, surrounded by my grace. He's saying, let me do you good. Come out into shalom from this time forth and forevermore. Let me pray for us. Father, we pray uh, that you would call us out into shalom. Uh, We pray that you would call us deeper into you and into your grace and mercy and kindness. We thank you for um, the tastes of, of peace that you give us. And we pray for more of those in this world, uh, in our families, in our work, in our church. And we pray also um, that you would ultimately give us uh, everlasting peace. And we are with you one day. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.